Hello, and welcome to the City Grace Podcast. We're so happy you've decided to join us today as we learn how amazing it is to follow Jesus. Enjoy the message. So again, welcome to everybody that's here today. I'm so glad that you're with us. And uh, today we're kind of continuing a few weeks, uh, a series that we're doing for a few weeks looking at the life of King David. And uh, we're going to pause next week for Easter, of course, and then we'll be back for a couple of lessons after Easter looking at David again. Uh, David was the second king of ancient Israel and and probably the greatest king of uh, ancient Israel, but he didn't start out that way. And when we're introduced to King David, he was actually a a shepherd boy, young, uh, young little shepherd boy out on his own. He was a a musician, he was a poet, he was a warrior, he was a fighter, he was a lot of different things. And, and so we're kind of looking at a few lessons, a few episodes in David's life, and kind of looking at, well, maybe why would we say that David was probably Israel's greatest king? Why could we say, how could we say that by grace he became Israel's greatest king? Because none of us start out to be what God wants us to be, but all of us can be changed by God's grace. Amen. And so last week, we actually left David in a really, really tough spot. We were looking at a huge failure in David's life. Um, There were two really, really big failures in David's life. One of them is really well known. The other one that we looked at last week is maybe lesser known, but actually had, I think, more devastating consequences. More devastation and tragedy and pain came out of David's lesser known failure than out of his, his greater known failure. And really, all of us if we have had or experienced any pain or failure in our lives, I think that all of us would say that when we're in a bad spot, and this is kind of what we walked away from last week, right? We're even less likely in that time, in that trouble, in that distress, we're even less likely to lean in God's direction. It's like when we need God the most is when we feel least like calling on God, like asking for God's help, you know, because there's this just storm going on in our hearts, and a lot of times we just don't want to admit it, we don't want to wrestle with it, we don't want to come to terms with what we're going through and what we're choosing to do. And, and so David kind of was following that pattern. And where we left David last week to where we're going to see him today, we kind of see David in this same downward spiral, if you will, kind of following that same movement, that same momentum that really a lot of us have experienced. But just at the last moment, just when it was going to, you know, David was about to do something that he would regret for the rest of his life, before he pushed send, before he pressed dial, right, before he did whatever it is that we do, David was saved by a woman. And it's usually the women that get us into trouble. No, don't say amen. Don't say we're not going there this morning. This isn't that message. I'm not that guy. But, but before we join David and the woman wearing the cape, um, I wanted to ask us this morning, who here has heard of the golden rule? Heard of the golden rule? Let me see your hand. You heard of the golden rule? This is the golden rule right here. He who has the gold... No, wait, that's not the golden rule. That's, that's the dad rule. That's the dad rule. This is the golden rule right here. Everybody say it with me. Ready? Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. Wow, that's powerful, right? Come on, one more time. Here we go. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. And this is a great rule. And we all kind of know this rule, right? We grew up with this rule. And maybe even if you didn't grow up in church, you knew about this. Maybe you didn't know it was a church thing or a Bible thing. It is. It's, it's a Bible thing. It's a Jesus thing. And, and the golden rule is great until someone does us wrong. Can I hear an amen? It just got really quiet in the room. And then we don't like the golden rule, right? 
then we don't want so much a golden rule, like do you have an off-white rule maybe, like a, a kind of yellowing you know, rule, like yellow means caution, like look out, I'm about to go off on somebody. Can I hear? No, don't say amen to that either. So the not so golden rule, do unto others as others have done unto you. Now we, we know this rule, don't we? We practiced this rule, haven't we? In fact, tomorrow morning on the commute into work, we're going to do it again. Can I hear no more amens? I'm, I'm going to stop calling for amens. But in that moment when someone does us wrong, in that moment when we're hurting and we're feeling wounded, right? And, or maybe they don't even do us wrong. Maybe it's they do someone that we really love wrong. We're ready to return that favor, aren't we? We're ready to give someone a taste of their own medicine, which is just kind of a weird saying because it never actually heals anybody. But honestly, in that moment, like if we're honest in church, doesn't like getting back, doesn't it feel like the right thing to do? Yeah, thank you, Mike. <laughs> Going to change your name to Honest Mike right there. Yeah, just there's not a lot of, you know, red lights to stop us. Like it's justice. It's what they deserve, right? It makes the wrong that is between you. It makes it evil. Evil, yeah, it's evil too. It makes it equal. Right? It makes you and it makes them even. And then there's that other thing, though, that happens sometimes, and we maybe have all experienced this, because we can't always pay back the person that did us wrong. Maybe they're not around anymore. Maybe, you know, they're older. Maybe they're in a higher position than we are. And so what we do to kind of compensate is we'll actually mistreat someone else as a way of getting back at the person that hurt us. And this is not even close to the golden rule, right? Do unto others as someone else has done unto you. And the thing about this one, this is kind of like the thing from last week, this one's almost impossible to see in the mirror. This one's almost impossible to see in ourselves, but our spouses see it, our kids see it, our employees see it, right? And, and it's really hard to see in ourselves, and it's called projection, the, the bitterness that we feel and the craving for something to be made right, an injustice or wrong. And listen, it's legitimate, the injustice that has been done to you, the wrong that's been done to you, the anger that you now feel, it may not be you know, returned to the person who gave it to you, but it's going somewhere. It's going to fall on someone, and maybe we're angry at a father or a mother. Maybe this is where we see men get abusive towards women or managers abusive towards employees or parents over-disciplining their kids. And I, I'm not a psychologist, and, and that's not where we're going with all of this, but there is something going on that we just touched on in all of this, and that is that in all of our hurting and in all of our trying to hurt someone else to get even, we are trying to get even. We're trying to bring balance. Something feels like the scales of life are just tipped the wrong way, and, and we need to make things equal. And so I can't take it out on you, but I'm going to take it out on her. I can't get back at, at him, and so, you know, I'm going to unload on you because I need to get things balanced back in my life. I need to make the scales of life even. And by the time we get done hurting someone because we've been hurt, like life is just so messy and it's so complicated. It's, it's like trying to put something back in the box. It's too late. It's just out, and it's spilled everywhere, and, and there's no way that we're going to get everything back to the way that it should be. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. When we're living with the not-so-close-to-golden-rule and the not-even-close-to-golden rule, when we try and make things balanced like this, when we try and give people back what they have done to us, trying to get even, the problem with getting even is that it makes you even with someone that you don't even like. Think about it. You don't like them. You don't want to be like them. But yet you are trying to get even 
with them. Wait, you know, what is it? I thought I was better than that, but I really just want to get back to that. I thought I was farther down the road than that, but I kind of want to slow down and maybe take a detour and unload some of this pain. I thought I was more mature. I thought I was kinder. I thought I was the bigger person. Why would I want to go back there? Why, when I consider myself so much farther ahead, would I want to backtrack and lose ground in my life? Why do we do that? Why do we want to do that? Anybody know what I'm talking about this morning? Mm. Mm, it's quiet in the room, always a good sign. But there is, there is a better way forward. And that's why we're here today, and we're going to see it today in the life of David. And so single parents, if you're here this morning, lean in a little bit for yourself, and not just for yourself, but for the sake of your kids and your little ones. You're going to have to teach them this someday. Anybody here that's hurting, and you've been hurt, and like I said, it's legitimate. I'm not trying to minimize or, or trivialize what you have, you've felt and what you've experienced, what's been done to you. Anybody here that it just seems like you're in rocky relationship after rocky relationship? Seems like things just always seem to, to head south. Or anybody here dealing with anger? If you'll, you'll stick with me for a little bit, I think we can see a better way forward. All right? All right. You guys ready to go find David again? We left him out there. So David, there's so much to the story of David. His story is so rich. His life is so rich. I feel like we're leaving so much meat on the bone. David lived about 1,000 years before Jesus. It was about 3,000 years ago from now, and there's so much cool history to his life. He steps on really to, to the pages of history when he, when he gets famous um, when he was 15 years old. He kills a giant of a man named Goliath. You've probably heard of the David and the Goliath story, right? And instantly, he becomes a hero. Instantly, everybody knows the name of David. And then it turns out that it, that wasn't just like a one-time thing. Like, David turns out to be really smart. He's a really shrewd strategist. And so he's given this contingent of men in his teen years. And he actually leads these men to more and more victories. Situations and, and battles they should not have been able to win because of David and because of how smart he is and because of God's blessing on his life. He becomes more famous when he starts winning you know, conflict after conflict. And Israel, the nation of Israel that he was born in, they actually end up better off. They actually end up safer. But not because their king is King Saul, but because David is on the scene. Well, this is a mixed blessing because, of course, it makes Israel's first king, King Saul, makes him extremely jealous, murderously jealous. And he goes after David. And now David, at 22 years old, goes on the run. And we started the journey with him last week. And, and this week we're going to see David still running. But now David's not alone. Now David has been joined with some malcontents, some people who could see that Saul was kind of on a downward path himself, and, and they were looking for the next king, the next ruler, and, and, and some people that were not so well off, just looking for a rebellion to follow, right? Somebody that wanted to burn the credit card companies to the ground. Can I hear one more amen before? And so David is, is gathering these people around him, and David actually turns into almost like a, a kind of Robin Hood, and, and he does a couple of protection missions, you know, for the people that kind of lived on the fringes of Israel, people that weren't under the main protective services of Israel, and, which is amazing that even in his isolation and even in, in his exile, David is still serving God's people, even with Saul after his life. And Saul, King Saul and his soldiers, they are after David. But David's group is small, and he's kind of nimble, and he's kind of quick, and he keeps eluding Saul. And then one day, something interesting happens between David and this wealthy husband and wife that we're going to look at near a valley called Maon. 1 Samuel 25 verse 2 tells us, A certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. He was very wealthy. He had three, or he had a thousand goats. Who here knows somebody with a thousand goats? 
Look at that. Nobody. Nobody here knows people this wealthy. Like this guy was wealthy. 3,000 sheep. Sorry, I know this is a bad joke. Um, that was horrible. Which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. And she was an intelligent and beautiful woman. But her husband, wives stay really quiet during this time, her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite which explains so much around my household. But he was just, this word surly just means heavy. It means he was a pain. It means anybody, anytime anybody wanted to, to have a good time, he's like a wet blanket. You know, you, you might know people like this. They're like penicillin, right? It's best in small doses, too much, and feels like it's going to kill you. And, and Nabal, his, his, his name even means fool. His name means a fool, which is so messed up. Imagine how messed up you would be if your parents named you fool. And he's carried this around his whole life, and it's affected him and shaped him. And parents, be careful because your words are heavy. And, you know, we start feeling sorry for Nabal until he goes and he acts a fool. And in verse 4, it tells us, while David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. Now, we would just read right past this because we're not shepherds. But listen, shearing sheep time was paycheck time. You kept all these sheep, you know, for all those months and all, and then it was time to shear the sheep, and it was time to get paid. Hello, somebody. What mood are you in on payday? Can I hear an amen from anybody who feels like a room without a roof, right? Like, you just, keep up, y'all, keep up, y'all. Nabal is about to find out, like, he's even wealthier than he thought. This payday is going to be bigger than ever. It's been a good year. And so David, he's smart. He's picked this time on purpose. He knows what mood Nabal's in. And he's going to go and ask him a favor. Hey, we've been your protector. We've made sure that nobody, you know, steals any of your sheep. You know, you were counting on some losses. It just happens. People come by. They raid them. Some sheep get sick and die. And, and because of us, Nabal, you're doing better than you would have been without us. You know, so you know so David sends 10 young men, and he says to them, listen, go to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name and say to him, long life to you, Nabal, good health to you and to your household and good health to all that is yours. Hey, Nabal, things look like they're going great. The ranch looks great. Abigail's still beautiful as ever. Your kids look great. Your employees are happier than the ones at Chick-fil-A. Like, everything is great, Nabal. I wonder how that all happened. You know, I wonder how it is, Nabal, that you're better off than you thought you were. Now I hear that it's sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, Nabal, we didn't mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs went missing. We were good. We were kind. We protected them, made sure that you prospered, didn't beat anybody up. We're the good guys. We have been helping you out. So ask your own servants. They'll tell you. Therefore... Because of our goodness to you, be favorable toward my men. Since we come at a festive time, please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find. For the, We didn't steal from you, Nabal. That's the mafia. That's called a shakedown where we take what we want because we're strong enough to take what we want. But we've been good to you. Can you find it in your heart to be good to us? And when David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. And then they waited, and they waited, and they waited, and it got awkward. There was the cheesy orchestra music playing in the lobby. 
staring at tent walls and looking at outdated copies of Time magazine. One guy's trying to flirt with the receptionist because it's just been, you know, a long time out on the run, right? And waiting can't be a good sign. If Nabal was grateful, he probably would have responded right away. And finally, Nabal calls him into his office. And Nabal answered David's servants, who's David? Who is this David? Who is this guy that's been protecting all my herds and made me richer than I've ever been? Who is this David, the son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their master. And Nabal's showing himself to be a fool right in his answer. Like, which is it? Do you not know David? Or do you know that he's broken away from Saul and he's on the run? You just gave away your hand. Like horrible poker face, Nabal. Like you just tipped that you know exactly who David is. And, and now you're, you're admitting that you know that David's on the run and David's a fugitive. And if you refuse to share, then David can't go anywhere for help. In fact, if you refuse to share with David, then you might even be rewarded by King Saul. And Nabal, Nabal goes on. He says, why should I take my bread and water and the meat that I have slaughtered from my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? I don't know you guys, didn't expect you guys, I didn't ask for your protection, didn't ask for your kindness. I'm certainly not going to respond in kind. No good for good. I know that without you, I wouldn't have what I have, but I have it now, so get lost. David's men go back and they tell David everything that Nabal said, and David flexes his jaw muscle. You know what that's like, right? That's in the movie scene when the hero gets really worked up, right? He's clenching and unclenching his fist. And, and David says to his men in a deep, low, ominous voice, each of you strap on your sword. So they did, and David strapped his sword on as well. Now, before we go on, we all kind of, kind of see what's going to happen next, right? Before we get there, how many of you have ever heard the expression, exercise self-control? Anybody ever heard that? Exercise self-control. It's an interesting word choice. But the thing with self-control and really all of the other virtues is this. They're like muscles. And if you don't use them, you lose them. Self-control and all the other virtues are kind of like what you see in athletes when they've been training so much and so often and been through so many reps of the same play and the same circumstance that when they get into game time and, and they're running through the line and there's that split second where a defender shows up, like they juke left and go right without even thinking about it. And if they were to take and break down what should have been done in that moment, it would take them hours to break it on all down like second by second. But this athlete, because he's trained his, himself, he's got muscle memory of what to do, he acts and reacts in an instant and doesn't even think about it. And it turns out that virtue is just like that. But what we see with David is someone who has not been exercising his self-control. He has not been exercising his virtues. He's been living with zero training on what to do when he gets offended. Zero training on what to do when he gets insulted. Zero training for when he's mocked and when he's treated lightly. Saul offended him and insulted him, and David just ran away. Now David's living in the wilderness, huddled in a cave with men who every day tell him how great he is. With men who tell him how much better things are going to be once Saul's out of the way. And David finally takes charge. And it's voice after voice feeding his ego and feeding all of his imagination. And it's not just the voices of the people around him. Like in David's own mind, I'm sure, echoes the voice of Samuel, the, the man, that the prophet from God that had anointed him king years earlier. Years earlier. He'd already been selected as the next king of Israel, but he's living in a cave because of Saul. 
Nobody should be treating him like this. And with no training, with no exercising or flexing his self-control muscle, David gets up and grabs his sword and tells his men to do the same. And the thing is, as much as we can see this in David, we can never see this in ourselves. Like, we know David shouldn't be on the run. It's legitimate that he's upset, right? We know that David shouldn't have to live in a cave. He shouldn't have to be apart from his wife. He shouldn't have been driven from his, from his home. But the fact of the matter is, bad things happen to good people. Like, life just contains some misery sometimes. And when we're hurt, we try to, to hurt people back. And the reason that we do it is because of all the injustice that has been heaped on us. And it's tipped the scales the wrong way. And we just need to do something to try and put things right, to try and balance the scales, try and get back a little of what has happened in us. And the, to balance out the pain and the injustice that exists in our world, we are willing to bring pain into someone else's world. And you may have heard it like this before, and this is so profound but so true, that hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. When you're hurting, you feel like giving some of that pain away. And we, we kind of default to giving it back to the person that's hurt us. But sometimes when we can't reach them or hurting them isn't an option, we will hurt whoever seems like the next likely target. And this is the thing, I mean, I'm going to pull the verses a little bit out of order here if you go and read this on your own later. But David, it, it, it amazes me just how much like us David is, how normal and regular David is, you know. And Because and, when we're hurt and we're about to hurt someone else, you guys probably know this, when we're about to hurt someone else, when we're hurting, we have to kind of talk ourselves into it, don't we? Kind of have that, that, that scenario going on in our minds. Like we daydream about what we're going to say. We see ourselves in front of a small crowd, right? We justify what we're about to do. We play the scenario out. A scenario out. We get our emotions all worked up, right? Because you can't hurt somebody cold turkey. You can't hurt somebody without a reason because that just makes you the bad guy. And none of us are really the bad guy. So no, no, no. They did this to me and they deserve for me to respond like this. They deserve for me to dish out some of the anger that's going on. And so you got to come in hot, man. You got to come in strong, right? And you've been thinking about it. You've been playing that conversation over in your head. I mean, you got your neck rolling, your fingers snapping, like you're about to tell somebody off and everybody around is going to go, ooh. I guess only me and like three other people know what I'm talking about. This is exactly what David's doing in the story. We're about to see this. He's about to rain down wrath, actual wrath, like swords and bloodshed, and screams and brutality, about to rain down wrath on people that he doesn't even really know. He's got years of rage at Saul built up on the inside, and it's about to explode on somebody. But he can't hurt people without reason. He can't take out all this pain on them without, you know, and then look like the bad guy. So he's got to talk himself into a situation where he comes out the hero. And so David has just said, it's been useless. All my watching over this fellow's property. He didn't have a contract with the guy. The guy never asked him to. All my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that none of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. And David's talking to himself, and he's pumping himself up, and he's talking to his men and pumping his men up. Yeah, we're going to go, and we're going to kill Nabal, right? And he says, may God deal with David. He's talking about himself in the third person now. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong 
to him. Woo! There it is. Payback. Wrath. Vengeance. David, his men are on their way to do some slaughtering of a lot more than just sheep because hurt people hurt people. Hurt people hurt people. But fortunately for David, there are other people in the story. And one of whom, and we have no idea how this happened, it it doesn't give us the answer, but one of the people in this story is Nabal's wife, Abigail. Quite possibly the only foolish thing Nabal, or the only non-foolish thing Nabal ever did in his life was marry Abigail. And verse 3 told us she was an intelligent and a beautiful woman. And I like how God described that. And he put intelligence first. And her, she was beautiful as a bonus. And in, in a world of arranged marriages, somehow Nabal had arranged to be married to Abigail. And one of the servants goes to Abigail and he tells her, listen, we, you know, your husband Nabal did this and we heard David's on his way. He's going to kill everybody, and, and we're rich because of David, and we're safe because of David, and dum-dum just insulted him. I mean, poor Nabal, right? Like everybody, it's like everybody in his house knows that he's a fool, and they're talking about him like that, and now David's on his way to wipe him out, and so Abigail, is there anything that you can do? And intelligent and beautiful Abigail, she springs into action. She gets 200 loaves of bread. She gets some wine and, and some sheep, and she gets some raisin cakes, Ew. You know, but then get some pressed fig cakes to kind of make up for it. And she heads out from the ranch to meet with David and the servant and the gifts. And then have I mentioned that she's intelligent? She did not tell her husband, Nabal. Smart girl. She takes off to go meet David. She's riding to meet David with her gifts. She's headed down into a ravine and she looks across and she sees David and his men coming down the ravine on the other side, and, and this is so good. Listen, you, you need to read the Bible. These stories are so rich. There's so much in here. And, you know, and when she sees David, in verse 23, it tells us, when Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. Now listen, here's why this is so good. Not because it's Abigail bowing down to David. But listen, this is something that should catch our attention because we know the end of the story that David ends up becoming king someday. But at this point, He's not a king. She's wealthy. She's loaded, man. She's beautiful. She has respect. She has status. She has title. She has position. She has possessions. And David is an outlaw. David's on the run. David hasn't taken a bath in I don't know how long. David's homeless and lives in a cave. And he just had to ask her husband for a handout. At this very moment, there are probably thousands of soldiers riding through the hills looking for David. And and it's only a matter of time as far as they know. I mean, it's not if David gets caught. It's when David will, you know, gets caught in in their eyes. David will be killed. There's no way he's going to get away from all those soldiers. He'll just be a footnote in our history. The kid that killed a giant who then got killed by the king. But Abigail, when she sees him, she bows to David. David's kind of taken back. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm going to kill Nabal and and really just bring down wrath on his house. I thought I knew how they all felt about me. I thought I knew that they were all laughing at me and kind of having a joke at my expense. But here is his wife bowing to me as if I'm already loyalty, royalty. And here's the thing about what Abigail did. Abigail is treating David as if he's already the man that she hopes David will become. Now, this is huge. I don't want to rush past this. Abigail is treating David as if he's already the man that she hopes he will become. 
She's treating the man that is about to hurt her as if he's already someone who would never hurt her. She's aiming not for getting back. She's aiming not for revenge or not for setting up a preemptive strike. She's aiming to see a different kind of man standing in front of her after it's all said and done. Now listen, ladies, take notes. Like, take notes on this. This works on us guys all the time, even when we know what you're doing. It works on all the guys. It's like the smallest little attaboy, and we're going to be tripping over ourselves trying to show off for you. I'm serious. I'm serious. You know, you're so strong. I bet you can carry all the groceries in on one arm. We're like, shoot, yeah, I can. You want to watch? You know, like, so just, just take note. And Abigail's so smart, and she's doing this to David, but not in a pandering way. She's speaking to David's potential. She's speaking to what God had already called David to be. I think she had faith in God's plan for David's life, and she could see God's plan for David more clearly than she saw Saul's plan for David. And so she spoke as if he was already the man that she hoped he would become. This story is so incredible. There's so much there, the faith and the working and the orchestrating that God is doing. Listen to me, nothing is ever out of God's control. I don't care how much you've been hurt, how often you've been hurt, how heavy it is that you are carrying. I don't care what it looks like. I don't care your past. I don't care if you're even on the actual way to pay somebody else back. God can still be found in the most unlikely places if you will pause and just let God show up and be God. So Abigail, to David, she, she puts all her cards on the table. There's no point in holding back now. She fell at his feet and she said, Please pay no attention, my lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. Well, he's your husband. I know. Nobody knows better than me. He's wicked. He's just like his name. His name means fool. And folly goes with him. This is so messed up. He's a fool, and he's about to get us all killed, right? And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands. And I love what she's doing here. It's like a Jedi mind trick. It's like you are not going to do what you are planning to do. You are not going to do what you are planning to do. God is keeping you from doing what you are planning on doing. God is protecting you by not letting you do what you are planning on doing. And she's right. Like, David does not want this on his conscience. David doesn't want this as part of his story. You don't want this reputation, David. And she goes on, she says, May your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. He's a fool. May you be wiser than all your enemies. May you be a bigger and better man than all of your enemies. He's so petty, Nabal is. He gets it from his mother. No, she didn't say that. She didn't say that part. May you be stronger, David. May you be faster and smarter than Nabal. And then she does something so powerful, and this is, this is amazing to me. She calls out in David what could be if David will only listen to God's plan. She calls out what, you know, what could be in David's story if he will only put aside what he wants and turn instead to what God wants. Once, please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight the Lord's battles, David, not your own battles, but you fight the Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. David, think of what God can do with your life. Think of what God can do through your life and your story. If you will pause 
Press pause on your anger and turn instead. Instead of getting even, if you'll get God's will and God's grace and offer your life to him in innocence and in purity and in peace. And she's not even done with her brilliance. This lady is amazing. Even though, David, someone is pursuing you to take your life, and that's no small thing. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living. It's not going to work, David. You're going to escape. You're going you're to live by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. She's brilliant. Who made the sling famous? David did. When did David make the sling famous? When he killed the giant in that moment when he ran out into the biggest battle of his life. And in that moment, David was only aware of God's plan. David was only aware of God's agenda. His pain and his past was not a part of his 15-year-old story when he went to meet Goliath. In that moment, he was not dependent on himself at all. It wasn't about David. Everything was about God and what God wanted for his people. She's calling him back to that moment with a few words. Abigail has taken David and, and teleported fugitive David, you know, from, from hardened, but he's hurting, from strong, but he's feeling strung out. He's a hero, but he's homeless. She's transported him back in time to that moment when he ran toward the giant, and the slingshot was spinning around in his, in his hand, and, and with a prayer, David flung his destiny into God's hands and let God take care of the outcome. So she takes David into the past. And then she's not done. Then she brings David again into the future to, to give him clarity. I mean, she's, she's so good at this. She's so wise and so intelligent. And she tells David, really, what could be the point of the whole message for us today. Essentially, she asked David, what story do you want to tell? David, when you're old and gray, what story do you want to tell? David, everything we do in this life becomes a chapter in our story. And what you do in the next few moments, you're about to write that chapter. So David, when you're in the sunset of your life and, and you look back over your days and you begin to sum up your days, how do you want to look back? With honor, with joy, or with satisfaction, or with sadness and regret? And she says in verses 30 and 31, she says, when the Lord has fulfilled for my Lord every good thing that he promised concerning him, and when he's appointed him ruler over Israel, David, you're going to be king. My Lord, you, David, will not have on his conscience the staggering burden of needless bloodshed or of having avenged himself. David, what you do in these next few moments is going to write the, that chapter of the story of your life. And how do you want to remember it? And it's amazing stuff. This lady was brilliant, wasn't she? Amazing. She stopped a mini army from coming to her house and slaughtering all of the men. And David's hot anger is cooled off to the freezing point, right? And I think he's just maybe even doing like a slow clap at this lady's speech. And, and David says to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. David's saying, I know better, but I needed someone to make it clear for me. 
I knew better than to do this, but I couldn't see it in the mirror. I knew I shouldn't be going down this road and about to do this deed, but I had so worked things up in my mind. I was so ready to get rid of some of this pain, and it's almost impossible to see in myself that what I was doing was not the right thing. I daydreamed about it, come up with plenty of reason for it, but you, Abigail, have shown me why I shouldn't consider my own agenda, but put all of my problems in my life into the hands of the Lord. And David turns around, goes back to his cave, sends Abigail back home to Nabal. And when she gets home, Nabal had no clue that Abigail had even been gone. And when Abigail gets home, Nabal is drunk. He's like sloppy drunk. And so she tells him nothing at all until daybreak. And then in the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things and his heart failed him and he became like a stone. Wow. And then about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal And he died. Wow. Then word kind of spreads around that Nabal is dead. And when David hears that Nabal is dead, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, praise be to the Lord. And then that's not all he said because he gets lonely on the run. Then David sent word to Abigail asking her to become his wife. He proposed by text message. That is so boss, man. And when he did, Abigail, she quickly gets on a donkey and attended by her five female servants, went with David's messenger and became his wife. And they lived happily ever after. Not really. I made that part up. They didn't really live happily ever after. Actually, Abigail just became one of David's wives. And nobody lives happily ever after when you become one of somebody's wives. But that's another story, and you can read it for yourself. There's a lot of tragedy and a lot of pain involved in that. But here's what we have out of today's story. Today we have three characters and three different responses. We have Nabal, who repaid evil for the good that was given to him. That's something that we don't even really understand. Most of us aren't here, right? David had helped him become wealthy, and he told David to get lost. No generosity, no kindness, no consideration of God's plan and who God wanted to make David into. And then we see David who, you know, he was about to repay evil for evil, which is kind of like our story, right? It's the most common experience in this room. Everybody here at some time, we all would have felt that same thing to some degree. But then there's Abigail. Then there's really the hero of the story. And she sees sees things God's way. She sees God's potential in David and what God wants to do through David. And she helps David look back and remember. And then she helps David see the future and choose a different path. Three different characters with three completely different responses to the situations. And Nabal, he was maniacal. Nobody wants to be like Nabal. David, in this instance, David was really predictable. We could have predicted that outcome. It's maybe what we would have wanted to do ourselves. But Abigail... From the very beginning of the story, she's remarkable. She's amazing. Her response, her judgment, her her self-awareness and her awareness of of how Nabal was and her judgment and her wisdom and, and the actions. What an absolutely remarkable human being Abigail was. And here's the most amazing thing to to those of us that maybe know a little bit about the Bible, maybe we've studied it a little bit. Abigail was a thousand years ahead of her time. See, Abigail lived in a time of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
Abigail lived during a time when vengeance was the, the word of the day. And it was such a different world than we experience now after Jesus and after the cross. But her actions called for mercy. And she called on David to look ahead instead of merely trying to get even. In our Bible, you know, we're, our, our Bible's divided into an Old Testament and, an, and a New Testament. An Old Covenant and a New Covenant. And the Old Covenant was about vengeance and eyes for eyes and teeth for teeth. But the New Covenant... We don't live under the old. We live under the new covenant. And the new covenant was instituted by Jesus. It's what he brought into being when he did exactly what Abigail asked David to do that day. Jesus returned good for evil. And not just in history, in this room, Jesus has returned good for our evil. For all of our sin and all of our brokenness and all of our rebellion. For the people in our lives that we have hurt, sons and daughters of God that God has put into our lives, that we have wounded and hurt and damaged, situations and circumstances and abuses and behaviors and habits and addictions that have broken us down and brought pain into our world. Maybe we've even caused someone else to be hurt who then wants to go out and hurt somebody else. We've brought only that to Jesus, only our evil. Jesus has repaid good for our evil. He changed everything. And Abigail was like an echo of something that was to be spoken in the future. And in fact, we see Peter, one of the early catalysts of the Jesus movement. He, he had seen this happen to Jesus, seen this played out in Jesus' life. He saw Jesus wrongly arrested. He saw Jesus lied on. And then he saw Jesus spit on and, and beaten and ridiculed and whipped he saw Jesus, though he was innocent, ran through a sham of a trial and wrongly accused and, and convicted without evidence. The judge himself said, there is no evidence. But it didn't matter because people were repaying evil for the good of Jesus. And it had to happen in order for Jesus to repay good for evil for us. And eventually Peter saw Jesus nailed to a cross and died. And then Peter, who had seen Jesus' response, who saw Jesus in his remarkable life, when he saw how Jesus responded to the evil that was done to him, it changed who Peter was. It fundamentally transformed his character and his nature. It changed the kind of man that he was. And, and he wrote to some early Jesus followers. They were early Christians who were also living a, just a hellish existence. Early Christians that had been driven from their homes and, and arrested themselves and beaten themselves and dispossessed and run out of the country just like David had been. And Peter writes to them in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. He says, do not repay evil with evil. Do not repay insult with insult. And they were thinking, and I'm sure we think at times, but Peter, they deserve it. They've done evil to me. Peter would say, I know, but don't repay evil with evil. But Peter, I've been hurt. I know that you've been hurt. That's what makes it evil. Peter, it looks like they're getting away with it. I know that's what it looks like. But God did not call you to be the judge, the jury, and the executioner. God has called you to something else. He goes on. He says, on the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called. That's hard. That's hard because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. He doesn't even say just ignore what they've done to you. He doesn't say bury in your past what they have done to you. 
He says, you need to pay them back, but not with the evil that they gave to you. Repay evil with blessing. Repay evil with blessing. And then Peter does something amazing. He quotes David. David, later on in his life, when he was old, would look back on maybe this episode and some others and reflect on on everything that had happened and the wisdom that he had been given by a woman named Abigail. And Peter quotes David in verses 10 and 11, for whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. That's hard. This is hard. But when we repay good for evil, we'll never be more like Jesus than we are in that moment because that is what Jesus did for me. And it's what Jesus did for you. You, you, you. All of us, none of us deserving, but Jesus has given us good for our evil. Peter got this from David. And Peter had heard Jesus say something like this again in his most famous sermon. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. See, hate your neighbor and hate your enemy, that's just maniacal. That's just crazy. Nobody does that. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, well, that's pretty predictable. We've all experienced that. But love your neighbor and your enemies? It's remarkable. It's different. It's uncommon. Refusing to get even with someone, but instead to do good when others have done evil to us, it's the most Christ-like thing that we will ever do in our lives. God help us. God help us. God help us. So here's what we have to ask ourselves today. Three questions. First, do I really want to be even with someone I don't even like? You don't even like them. Come on. You drew a mustache on their picture. You drew horns on their picture. You cut their head off in that picture. Mm, some giggles on that one. <laughs> some guilty giggles on that one, right? Like, You learned Photoshop just so you could erase them from your pictures. If they're below you or if they're behind you, why, why would you step down to their level? So instead of getting even, move ahead. The second question would be this. What story do you want to tell? What story do you want to tell? David is just around a bend in the road from wrath. David's just around a bend in the road from getting even. And Abigail asks him to look ahead farther than the one bend in the road. She asks him to look at the time when he's old and looking back over his life. David, what story do you want to tell when you're the king? When you're old and gray and your grandkids come and they gather around your knee, you know, what story do you want to tell them about how you became king? Well, basically what I did is I rode around the countryside and everybody that insulted me, I killed them. And so then everybody kind of made me king, you know, in self-defense. No, that's not the story you want to tell. Well, David, everything that you do becomes part of your story. And so how do you want to tell your story with joy, with shame, with honor, with regret. And then the last question, this is a big one, and this is probably the hardest one, but for Christians, this isn't optional. What would it look like for me to return good for evil? That hurt, those words, the things that have been done to you, what would it actually look like? Like, don't just put it as a good idea in the back of your mind. Yeah, I got, bring it front and center and stare at it. 
Think about it. You must repay good for evil. Think about him. Think about her. Maybe it's an ex. Maybe it's an ex-boss. I don't know. Maybe it's a son or a daughter that hurt you. Or maybe it's parents that weren't the parents that you thought they should be. What would it look like? What form would that blessing take if you could be like Abigail asked us to be? If you could be like Jesus. Don't just ignore them. Don't just block them. Don't just unfriend them. Bless them. Return good for evil. That's mercy. That's grace. And that's what every single person in this room has been offered by our Savior. That's what we have received. If you're a Christian and you've asked God to forgive your sins, you've asked God to give you good for your evil. If you've been baptized in the name of Jesus when you went under that water and then came up again, when you broke through that water coming up, all of your evil was buried in that water. God gave you good for your evil. If every day you're asking him to live a new life through you, then this is your story, good given for evil. And it's remarkable. And when we do it, the world looks at us and they think that we're crazy, but we're not the crazy ones. We're just the forgiven ones. We're not the crazy ones. We're just people that have encountered a love like no other love we've ever known. It's the love of Jesus. It's the love that we see on a cross. And it was proven to be the real kind of love when he got up on Easter morning. Jesus, let your love flow into our lives more and more freely every day. In Jesus' name. Can we all stand in this room this morning? Now, here's the thing. It's easy for us to stay here and talk about this, you know, in a church service. It's easy for us to think about it now, right? The music's playing. Come on, somebody. Everything's easier with slow music. It's easier to, to think about it in the dark, you know, and here in the room. And it's going to be easy to think about it in a moment when we come up to the front. But when you're home later on and it's dark and it's nighttime and you're alone, that's, that's when it's another thing. It's easy to kind of numb the pain when you're around other people, but when everybody else goes away... It's hard. It's hard. And that's why it's so important this morning. You have, you have to, you have to tie this, not to your own goodness or your own character, but to the goodness of God and what's been done for us. We've been given grace that was not deserved. We have been given mercy that is new every morning. We have failed and we have fallen. And every time we do, we only find forgiveness We've never been pushed away by God. We've never been abandoned by God. He's never plugged his ears to our prayers. He's never stopped caring. He's never stopped reaching. He's never stopped trying. Even when we're hurting and we're hurting others still. And when we see that kind of kindness and that kind of love, it changes us. It changes us and it it shapes us. And we might not be changing as quickly as somebody else wishes we would, but we're different now. And God is at work in my life, and God is at work in your life. But it's not for no reason. It's because he is calling you to something new. He is calling you to a different kind of life. It's because he believes that you also can turn and give the grace that you have been given to somebody else, that you can give the forgiveness that we did not deserve to somebody else. He believes in you. Your life is on purpose. Your circumstances are on purpose. And so I wonder today if if we could all bow our head all over this room and close our eyes all over this room. I wonder if you could say with me today that Jesus, I'm going to need some help for this. Jesus, this is going to hurt and this is going to be hard, Jesus, and I'm not sure exactly what it looks like yet, but Jesus, would you help me to give grace as I have had grace freely given? 
For more information about City Grace, you can find us online at citygrace.church. We'll see you next week.